0: From the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod.
1: I sat down recently with Stanley McChrystal, the retired Army General, who is a study in contradictions. On the one hand, he's a military legend for leading the highly secretive and sometimes brutal special operations that turned the tide in Iraq in the mid-2000s. His stint as commander of coalition forces in Afghanistan ended in controversy when members of his team derisively criticized U.S. civilian authorities. But talk with McChrystal, now a senior fellow at Yale's Jackson Institute for Global Affairs, and you'll find a brilliant, honest, and reflective thinker. I spoke with him recently at the University of Chicago's Institute of Politics about his new book, Risk, a user's guide, which is rich with leadership lessons. Here's that conversation General, welcome back to the Institute of Politics. Welcome back to the Axe Files. I want to talk about this book you've written, uh, Risk, which is really a handbook for leaders uh, as, uh, about how to assess risk and how to deal with it, anticipate it and deal with it. Before we get there, though, I just I want to we, – we've done one of these before, so anyone who's interested in deep bio on General McChrystal should go back to our Axe Files of uh, January 2019. I just have to raise this again, and it came up when we were in there. Several people asked you this. This was how Newsweek described you when you were a commander in Afghanistan. He eats one meal a day, works out obsessively every morning at 5, and is so free of body fat that he looks gaunt. Uh, lately, as commander of the war in Afghanistan, he's become kind of a Zen warrior, preaching that often the shot you don't fire is more important than the one you do. One meal a day still? Yeah, well,
2: first call me Stan David. You know, this is actually a great tactic because I could be an axe murderer, but people would ask me, do you eat one meal a day? Yeah. And so it's kind of a, hey, look over here, you know?
1: We actually have axe murderers on the <laughs> Axe Files. A, but, uh...
2: No, I, I, uh, I do. I started 40 years ago just as a way, because I thought I was getting fat as a lieutenant, and I didn't have the self-discipline to eat small meals. So what I do is I defer it till dinner, and then I eat everything I can reach.
1: Mm-hmm. I, you know, I was uh, reading that uh, particular paragraph today as I was thinking about this tonight as I was sitting at my favorite Delegatess Manny's in Chicago, and I was feeling really guilty uh, <laughs> uh, about that. So, but it's been 11 years now that you're out yeah. of the military. Tell me what you've learned about yourself. You've spent your whole life in the military. You come from a military family. You left the military, uh, you know, abruptly under, under yeah. circumstances that you didn't anticipate. What have you learned about yourself since then? What have you learned
2: about your country? Well, you were close to that when I left. And, and for those people who aren't students of this, I left in 2010 after an article came out in Rolling Stone magazine. And so I, it was not a good article. And uh, I canceled my subscription to Rolling Stone. Um, <laughs> but... I offered my resignation to President Obama, who was very gracious and and has been ever since. But the day I walked out of the Oval Office, my life had changed. I had been born in an army hospital. My father was a soldier. My father's father was a soldier. My four brothers were soldiers. My sister married a soldier. My wife is the daughter of a soldier. Her three brothers are soldiers. Her sister's the widow of a soldier. And she and I had been married. It's just
1: about a whole army right there. Yeah.
2: Um, And she and I had been... Married for almost thirty-four years, and suddenly, in an instant, I'm not a soldier anymore. Now, think about whatever you are. If in an instant you aren't that anymore, you can't look in the mirror and say someone says, "Well, what are you like So now, suddenly, I can't say that anymore, and so it causes that moment where you say, "Well, okay, what am I?" The first question is, "Am I? Am I a failure? Am I disgraced?" Because for the first 48 hours after I left the service, you know, every on the ticker at the bottom of uh, the news is Disgrace General McChrystal. You know, and you think that, well, that's my life from now on. And then you realize that national memory is about 48 hours long. And the rest of my life was going to be what I decided was going to be. And that was a really sort of liberating moment because, and I think I've told you this, X, I went home from the uh, White House. I had flown back from from uh, Afghanistan being gone a year at that point. And I told my, I walked into the house and my wife comes out kind of wanted to know what happened and I said, it's over. Our career is over. And she looked at me and she goes, good. We've always been happy and we will always be happy. And at that moment, it was kind of like this liberation because what you realize is you get to decide what you are after that. And so what I've been able to do for the last 11 years is decide what I want to be. And that was pretty interesting. Because if I wanted to, I could be an angry former general. And I could probably get asked out for lunch a lot to tell my story. But that takes a lot of energy to be angry and hateful. So I decided I didn't want to do that. So I decided I wanted to teach, I wanted to write, I wanted to start a business with people I really cared about. And so what it's taught me is, one, you get a choice. It's up to you. Nobody else is going to do it for you. And the baggage you carry is your way because nobody else cares. If I think that something happened to me that wasn't fair, nobody else cares. That's a good thing and a bad thing. And it's more good than bad because it just gives you the opportunity to, to define what you want to be. And so what I've learned is if you, are, if you try to be what you want people who you care about to think of you, that's a pretty good guide. You know, I, the people who cared about me before I wanted them to think that their faith had been well-placed. So I try to conduct myself that way.
1: I just want to make an editorial point here, which for those who don't know, there may be people who don't. The scandal, uh, was that some, you, you were out with some of your officers and there was some critical conversation about the president, about the vice president, now the president Biden, and it created Quite a a furor. I told you this before, and I think I told you maybe on the podcast. As soon as you left, the president summoned the senior staff into his office, particularly those who dealt with communications. And he said, a really, really good man just left here and his career is over. And that's a bad day. That's a bad day. And I don't want anybody treating it anything other than a bad day this is a loss for us. And he really, you know, he wasn't doing that for the benefit yeah. of, of anybody else. He he, he really felt it. Uh, even though there were nine very rigorous conversations and others that you had about what to, how to move forward in Afghanistan, you were brought in to try and chart a way forward in Afghanistan. And there were real differences about that. So let's talk about the yeah. saga of Afghanistan and yeah. maybe through the, the prism of some of the principles that you yeah. that you write about here, because you were there from the very beginning. Mm-hmm. Uh, in 2002, uh, you spent time in yeah. Afghanistan and uh, you've written and you've said, even then, there was a little bit of a sense of unease about what we were doing there and and how we should move forward. So uh, tell the story on your own, th- sure. th- through, through the prism of reflection now.
2: Yeah, I, I was a informal student of Vietnam. My father spent years in Vietnam. My brother served there. And I, I was too young for that. But I really had gone to school on the French experience there and then the American experience there. So when we went after Afghanistan, I, and I think many of my peers were very aware that, one, the Soviets had a tough problem. But any time you try to do something like this, it's going to be really difficult. And so I got there in the spring of 2002. And America had arrived the previous fall after 9-11. And we'd gone in and swept out the government run by the Taliban and and put al-Qaeda, basically, on the run. And the thing to remember is Afghanistan, at that point, had been torn apart by conflict for 20 years already. And we didn't go to Afghanistan because they invited us. We went because we wanted to get after the Taliban, I mean, Al-Qaeda. So we overthrew the government of the Taliban because they were supporting or they were giving a sanctuary to Al-Qaeda. And so we get there, and this country is torn apart. The society is torn asunder. Literally, it's physically uh, trashed. And 1.2 million Afghans have been killed just in the period against the Soviets. And they viewed that they'd been a proxy for us in, in their perception. And then, of course, they'd gone into a civil war and then the Taliban had come in. So there'd been this up and down. And So uh, there's a very simple argument that says, okay, we should have just, once Al-Qaeda fled, we should have just left. But the reality was, what do you do? I mean, there's a moral issue there. The place is absolute disaster. So the, the world at the West decides it's going to help. But we really didn't do very much, to be honest. From 2002... When I got there, until about 2008, the level of effective help was pretty small. We talk about we were in Afghanistan for 20 years, but those first eight or so years, what had actually been delivered in terms of aid and, and building of the Afghan military was minimal. And then, of course, it started small, and then the war in Iraq was the big distraction. And so. Well, well,
1: let me, let me ask you yeah. a few questions about this. Yeah. First of all, you said al-Qaeda was on the run. Right. There was a... A point there in 2001, in December of 2001, when Osama bin Laden was trapped in Tora Bora. Yeah. He escaped. If he had been captured, would that have changed the story at all? It was 10 years before he would ultimately be captured yeah. and killed in Pakistan.
2: I think it would have changed the narrative about Al Qaeda because Osama bin Laden at that point was the operational leader of Al Qaeda. Later, he Receded into much more of a figurehead role. So I think it would have given us the ability to claim success and spike the football. The problem is Afghanistan still would have been torn to pieces, and the world would have had decided what are we going to do. And the root causes, the motivations for Al Qaeda, were not rooted entirely in Osama bin Laden. They were rooted in a much broader level of extremism, which was was greater than him. So I don't think it would have solved the problem, although it probably would have given us a rationale to, to step away more rapidly.
1: Let me ask you a, a follow-up question, yeah. because you mentioned Iraq. The decision to shift focus, yeah. how much of a difference did that make? Because when, when we arrived there, when I was with President Obama, there was a sense that there had been you know, eight years of drift that, that you described with no real strategy while the focus was on Iraq. Do you share that view?
2: I do. I think in Afghanistan, it was drift. I mean, there was really the second team was there, a much lower level of effort. But also, the invasion of Iraq did so many things. I think it was probably the biggest foreign policy mistake of the last 40 or so years, um, because I don't think it was necessary at the time. And I don't think, in retrospect, I don't think it was necessary. And I don't think it was thought out. You actually wrote that you, were, you came back to the Pentagon right.
1: grudgingly. Right. You tried to spend your career outside of Washington and failed and arrived at the Pentagon. You, you said you were surprised to come back and find all of this planning yeah. relative to Iraq rather than focus on Afghanistan.
2: Yeah, the late summer of 2002, I came back from Afghanistan and went into an operations job on the Joint Staff, and there was a war game going on for the invasion of Iraq. And we had done war games for Iraq before because after the first Gulf War, there was. Pre- but this was a war game, a serious thing. And I said, What are we doing? And I said, Oh, we're doing this. So we went in for the next few months um, of preparations for capability to invade Iraq. And to be honest, myself and many of my peers thought it was pressure being put on Saddam Hussein to give up. Weapons of mass destruction, and so we thought that many of the preparations that were put in place were were actually chess moves to create that. And it wasn't until the day before Christmas in two thousand two, when we went into Secretary Rumsfeld's office to get a deployment order for some troops approved. And typically, when you, you went in to see Secretary Rumsfeld, he pulled out you know green eye shade and a sharp pencil, and he would go through if. If somebody had requested five troops to be sent, he'd say, why do you need five? Why don't you do two? And so we went in with Sounds one. Sounds like fun. Yeah. We went in one for 50,000 troops. And he approved it in about 30 seconds. Mm. We walked out of the office, a friend of mine and I, and said, they're going to do this. They're going to invade Iraq. And it was the first time, and I, I feel ridiculous now admitting this, it's the first time I realized that this was serious. There was an intention uh, to do that. I just didn't think it was necessary. I didn't think Saddam Hussein was a good guy. But I didn't think there was uh, a need for it. I thought he was like rotten fruit that was going to fall off the tree eventually anyway. And Iraq was a linchpin of order in that part of the East. which if you, you really look at the, yeah. the map there, yeah. And so removing him, unless you had an equally stable stable replacement, was going to be a problem.
1: Yeah. no, Iran was a great winner exactly. in that... Uh... Absolutely. In that exchange. And you yourself became deeply engaged in Iraq, famously in the surge in Iraq. Describe When you described drift in Afghanistan, when you, when you ultimately went back, what did you find?
2: Let, let me step back on the Iraq part yeah. because I think this is important. A lot of people don't understand. We put al-Qaeda to run in late 2001, and they were actually more damaged than we thought. There was a perception that there was another 9-11 coming but really, from about late 2001 until 2004 or five, I don't think they had the capacity. In many cases, they were scattered. Iran had actually put house arrest on a number of Osama bin Laden's family and whatnot. So I don't think they had much capacity, but we just didn't have a clear feeling of that. And then in uh, late 2003, a Jordanian named Abu Musab al-Zarqawi created an organization that wasn't part of Al-Qaeda initially, but he got great traction in Afghanistan, and it became known as Al-Qaeda in Iraq. And he created this movement that brought in many Iraqis who didn't share his level of zealotry and extremism, but he was the most successful thing, so it was like the franchise. So he became the energy for Al-Qaeda globally, by creating this very effective franchised part, the fight in in Iraq,
1: and it. So you're saying no invasion,
2: probably no Al Zarqawi, right. Because there was there was not Al Qaeda in Saddam Hussein who controlled Iraq because right. he, he wouldn't have it, right? Um, and so it gave an opportunity of chaos for that to grow, and then you got an adept leader and a number of factors that came together, and so. That became this all-consuming fight. And it, it really was very against the larger Al-Qaeda for about five years.
1: Let's talk about this through the prism of yeah. your book, because you talk about developing a risk immune system, and you have yeah. principles that should be applied to measure risk, evaluate uh, how to prevent risk, and so on. Were the decisions made then violative of these principles? And did, these, did what you watched then help inform Your sense of of these principles, did did you, through watching what was done there, say, you know,
2: this wasn't done and it should have been done? Yeah. Um, Basically, as we prepared and wrote this book, we said, why do we get it wrong so much? Well, in some cases you say we don't predict risk very well. And we don't because it's really hard to predict the exact nature and timing of what's going to rise. And if you realize that that's a bit of a fool's errand, what can you do about risk? Well, you can be very resilient. You can be very effective at what you do. Because I would argue if we have a natural disaster or an economic problem or some other kind of crisis that emerges, about 80% of what an organization and a government's organization does is the same. You have to communicate clearly with each other. You have to have a narrative that you're aligned on. You have to have effective leadership. You have to be adaptable to the conditions at hand. You have to be able to overcome inertia to actually do things. There are a number of things that you must do, qualities you must have for any crisis. And then there are some specific things you do, uniquely, whatever the crisis is itself. And so if we go back and we say that that is essentially our risk immune system, it is building up the capacity to respond to whatever it is that's, that happens, then we apply that to something like Iraq. It, the problem in Iraq that emerged was knowable. It was predictable better than we predicted it, but let's pretend it was not. The reality is, if you go into an, uh, a situation like that, what you really need is to be able to respond to those things that do emerge. And what did we struggle with in Iraq? Well, we struggled initially with communication across the U.S. government because we didn't do that very well, and we didn't communicate well with the world either. We didn't have a clear narrative. You know, we said we invaded Iraq for a weapon of mass destruction. Then we said we invaded Iraq to reestablish democracy in the region or establish democracy in the region. You know, we had a number of different narratives. And so if you don't have a clear narrative upon which you are aligned, it's difficult to keep people focused and, and coordinated.
1: We're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back with more of The Axe Files. And now, back to the show. You, you go back further uh, relative to Afghanistan. Afghanistan which, you know, one thing followed another, uh, the lack of communication within the U.S. government yeah. about the f- potential threat of an al-Qaeda attack, which was a knowable thing right. or a predictable thing, right. uh, was, a, was a, a cause of... of, of uh, yeah,
2: if you go back a little bit, and the history of Osama bin Laden, because most of us don't know it very well, he declared war on the United States in 1996 and it wasn't a secret he put it in writing he declared war on us and if we didn't believe that he attacked i'm just hitting the major things he attacked the embassy in dar es salaam and nairobi in 1998 killed a tremendous number of people he attacked the uss cole in in the harbor at aden i mean not only did he declare war on us he acted that out and As early as 1999, early 2000, we had the capacity, a new capacity with an unmanned, first an unmanned aerial vehicle called a Predator and the ability to put a missile on it. First, the Predator gave the ability to put this small aircraft in the air and do full motion video, watch from 10 or more thousand feet and watch something over time. Then by putting a missile on it, the Hellfire missile, and you've seen the drone strikes ever since, that capacity existed in the late 1990s and early 2000s. So then the question is, okay, we know Osama bin Laden's at Tarnak Farms in Afghanistan. We know he's already been doing things. We suspect strongly that he's plotting more things. And yet, at this point, we have a difficult time making a decision, overcoming the inertia that is resistant to taking action. You know, and and inertia, object at rest remains at rest unless something caused it, or object in motion remains at motion, same direction, same velocity, unless an, an outside force. And governments and organizations run into inertia. You've got to overcome inertia, either to change what you're doing or to start doing something. And we had a difficult time when we had tremendous reason to act, and you say, well, Those were evil bastards, American policymakers who didn't act, or they were stupid or whatever. Now, step back and put yourself in that position. Suddenly, you're in a position to decide whether a strike like that gets taken. There are a lot of foreign policy implications. You're striking inside a sovereign country. If you are a bureaucrat and you are somewhere in the government and you are accepting responsibility for approving such a strike, you put yourself in a certain amount of bureaucratic risk. So suddenly you realize sometimes it's easier not to do things simply because you put yourself in a fair amount of personal, professional, whatever risk. And so you can President find... President
1: Clinton did take a, a, a strike to try and, and, and get bin
2: Laden and fail. Yeah, it, it wasn't the best strike ever done. You know, he, he hit in Sudan, hit a milk factory. Uh, didn't get Osama bin, but he did. That was a famous what Monica Lewinsky strike, I think. They right. Called. Yes. Uh, but, but but I that's think that's another story. Yeah, I think it was taken with absolutely good faith. I think I don't think there was any of that yeah. involved.
1: But but, but didn't but it's just hard. in terms of the intel that wasn't shared about what possibly could happen in yeah. the way of an attack? Yeah. Was, violative. It seems to me of one of your principles, which is, the yeah. communication within an organization. They,
2: You know, all of the information to stop the 9-11 attack existed inside the US government before 9-11. And again, you say, well, how could you screw that up? Well, first off, it was mentioned in the president's daily brief, which is six or seven essential important things that are presented to the president each morning. It was presented, I think, 41 times in the eight months or so before 9-11. You say, well, ah, how could he miss that? But you put it in the mass of all the reporting he's getting, and it's actually pretty small signal in the noise of all this other stuff that's coming. So the ability to say this, of all the threats we tell you about, is the one. Now, I think there's, there's certainly an argument that the Al-Qaeda threat was, as the uh, uh, director of the CIA said, it was blinking red it was probably brighter than most. But the reality was, inside a big bureaucracy, you have a lot of information passing, a lot of warnings coming. And so you have to first be able to pull that signal out of the noise, and then you have to be able to overcome the inertia to do it, to make a decision and actually act.
1: So just getting back to Afghanistan, what did the Iraq decision mean for Afghanistan?
2: Afghanistan uh, when I was first there, we only had about 7,500 American troops. Pretty small, and it, and it stayed pretty small. But once the focus went to Iraq, the the major capabilities of the U.S. military went. When you think of capabilities, you count number of forces, and, and that's one thing. It's actually more subtle than that. Your best talent gets pulled to the biggest fight. I had been in Iraq. I, I was in Iraq for five straight years. And then I came home for 10 months, and then I went to Afghanistan. When I got to Afghanistan, it wasn't that the people who were there weren't good people, but the staff was made up of individual augmentees. In Iraq, we had put sort of the best and brightest had migrated there, cohesive units. And you get to it, when I got back to Afghanistan, I was kind of shocked. The communications infrastructure was really weak. The talent on the staff was much thinner than we had in Iraq. It, not only was it scale-wise smaller, but it, it just didn't have the same. There were a lot of people assigned there to get them a deployed experiment, to get them a, a touring combat, where the people in Iraq were the people who tended to go over and over. So you prioritize with a lot of different things, but one of the biggest is talent.
1: And, you know, I remember those discussions. I was a fly on the wall, basically, and my first exposure to you was on a secure video Uh, from afghanistan and the discussion was what could be what could you expect to achieve in afghanistan and could you uh train up the army and the police to resist the taliban could you build civil society uh and and government that was reasonably free of corruption and and you know and what would it take to do those things uh was it
2: Was it hubris to think that those things could be achieved? Um, There's certainly room to make that argument. Um, I certainly didn't feel like the people I was serving with, I don't think that was our attitude. I think our attitude, and this is worthy for all of us to do a lot of thinking about, because I talked to some students before this, and one of the points I made is I never saw anybody trying to screw it up, not in... D.C., not in Afghanistan. I saw good people working hard with good intentions, sacrificing, which ought to give us pause because if there was one stupid person there or one evil person or somebody trying to, you could just find them, get rid of them and solve the problem. But instead, we had really good people trying really hard to do something that they felt was important and yet it came up short. So now we got to look at what the problem was. I'd say first is I'm still a believer that the solution was not a counterterrorist only strategy, just to, because I think that's cutting the grass. You go in and. Which is know, what the vice president supported. I, I, I had a different view. And I just finished doing five years of counterterrorism in Iraq. And I, I believe that you needed to do more fundamental change. It's like a, a crime ridden neighborhood here. You can get some really badass cops, and you can go at night, and you can kick butt, and you can suppress crime. But you're unlikely to make the neighborhood a better place. It's, it's likely to produce more over time. So you really got to get at the root causes. And so in Afghanistan, the problem is the root causes were corruption in the government. They were a lack of technocratic ability. They just had torn, they didn't have an effective government for quite a while. It was uh, lack of economic opportunity. And there were all kinds of different factors that made Afghanistan particularly difficult. And so the question is, when I went to Afghanistan, I interpreted my mission as create enough security for the Afghanistan to protect its own sovereignty and therefore prevent al-Qaeda from having a sanctuary, which meant you had to have enough of an effective government that could provide enough security and opportunity that it would be legitimate with the people. That's not a high bar, but it's, it's still pretty significant. I interpreted that as my mission. And therefore, that, that's what we laid out to do. I wouldn't use the term hubris, but I would say that one of the things about when you give anybody, but particularly the military mission, they're going to do their best to accomplish it. And that means you also got to believe in it. You, at a certain point, the paradox is if you accept a mission and you don't believe it and you signal that to your troops, you guarantee failure. So to a degree, you ask the coach before the big game, even if they're underdogs, if they're going to win or not. So you have to understand that that psychologically occurs in the force. But But I would say that what we were trying to do, I still believe was doable. I believe it was hard. And I think if we use the argument that Afghanistan was either impossible or the graveyards of empires, we're giving ourselves a bye. And we shouldn't. I think what we should do is say, It was a very hard task, and maybe it was unrealistic for the United States to do it, but I don't think it was undoable. And so what I don't think we did is aligned ourselves or executed it as well as we could have. Um, You know, other people can have absolutely differing views, and, and, and I would respect that there's a good argument to be made, particularly for could you get the government legitimate enough in any kind of reasonable time frame to do it. I don't think it was impossible. I just, I think we came up short.
1: Would you believe that it would have been different if you had been able to stay? Do you think you could have made that difference? That would be... Now I'm inviting hubris.
2: Yeah, that would be yeah pretty arrogant. Um,
1: but I mean, what I guess the better way to ask this question, to not put you on that spot, is to say... What should have happened that didn't happen over the, the 10 years
2: after you left? I, I think when I left, I absolutely believed that it was doable, and, uh, or I wouldn't have said that. I believed that we could build up a credible enough Afghan military to give a bridge to, so they could do that part of it. It's the security side, and I, I think that was largely done what happened in Afghanistan when it collapsed was not that the military got defeated. The, the Taliban didn't conquer Afghanistan. The Afghan people lost faith that the government could survive, and so it just all imploded, and the, the Taliban occupied it. Because the Afghans just decided that it wasn't going to work, and they just said, well, I don't want to be the last person killed you know, on a losing thing. So they, they backed away. So it all gets down, in my mind, to governance. Um, I think we made a few missteps, I'll be honest. I think that when we signaled that we were going to start pulling forces out, uh, when President Obama made the initial decision uh, to surge, reinforced in the Afghans an insecurity that was already there. We had left in 1989, early 90, after the failure of the Soviets, and we just walked away, and we basically turned our back until after 2001. I think that they were always hyper insecure that we were going to walk away, and they didn't lack, they lacked the confidence to pull it together themselves. And so I think we chipped away at that confidence over the years, even though we stayed a long time. And, and again, the Afghans own more than 50% of the failure on this for what they didn't do. But the reality is, I think that they were always needing of a sense of reassurance that we would be their strategic partner. And how, how would that have
1: looked in terms of resources and yeah. time? I mean, would it have been a,
2: an open-ended? Um, yeah. There's would, no way of proven, you know, a counter-historical, but I think you could have kept a very small force there. But if you signaled to the Afghans that we are your ally and supporting you, that that would have done it. I think it was more symbolic at that point than it was operational.
1: So, And how small of... Uh, of I the... think
2: you probably could have had 2,500 people is what you had had you stayed. But the Doha courts, remember, right. said we're leaving. So we right. would have had to abrogate that agreement to maintain right. people there. But I think a very small force with, with... And again, we say, well, we can't be open-ended. But you don't have to say when you're going to leave if you say we're going to be conditions-based. And... You know, look at the forces we've left in other places for generations—Germany, Japan, Korea, things like that—but
1: not under threat. I mean, one of the questions, one of the points that President Biden made was we weren't getting shot at. American troops weren't getting shot at because there was this understanding that they were leaving at a at a prescribed date. If if that prescribed date then disappeared, then you'd be an active.
2: Yeah, the the president had an incredibly difficult decision. I actually respect his decision. It's not the one I would have made, but I respect it a lot because with the Doha Accords, it promised that it agreed Americans would leave by one May. So, if President Biden, when he entered office, if he had said no, we're going to stay, he would have abrogated that, and the Taliban would have started attacking us
1: for sure. And wouldn't that have required more troops then?
2: Uh, I don't know that. Um, I, I'm not sure it would have. I think you know the Afghans enough capability, and but but it still would have. They they would have caused some damage and it certainly would have created the, it would have continued the endless war, which Americans were tired of and the president had been on record as being against.
1: That's the other question I want to ask you, you know, so much of what we talk about and maybe I hope we get to it, but we, we talk about the uh, pandemic and all the decision-making around the pandemic. Um, The one factor that, has to be part of these equations, is sort of the political climate in our own country and the question of how long people are are willing to uh, to keep troops engaged in the way that they were engaged in, in Afghanistan. Doesn't that have to be part of the calculation?
2: Oh, I think it certainly does. But part of that is also based upon leadership. And that's based partly on narrative, and one of the factors we mentioned in the risk control factors is the importance of having a clear narrative, communicating that effectively, aligning people on that and staying with it. That's part of a leader's task. So I think it's it's critically important. If we go to COVID-19, as you talked about, what we ought to be doing here right now is we ought to be celebrating. Because if you think about COVID-19, We knew this virus was coming. We didn't know COVID-19 was coming, but they come with frightening regularity. So we knew it was coming. And we also knew what to do about it. We had this incredible history with public health. We know what to do about potential pandemics. And then this time, we got the fastest vaccine production in the history of man. So you line those three factors up together, and it should have been like a slam dunk when. COVID came, it should have been a challenge, and the United States, more than anyone, but also the world, should have been remarkably effective in fending off COVID-19, dealing with it. Not preventing it, but dealing with it. And yet, we're sitting here in masks and unhappy, and why? If you go back, communication from the beginning was ineffective, it was often at cost purposes, not just at the very top, but in other ways as well. We didn't create a clear narrative. If we would created a near clear narrative from the beginning about the pandemic, boom. Action. The thing about a pandemic is you have to act early before it's evident to the people, because if you don't, you're behind exponential growth or spread, so you gotta make a potentially politically difficult decision to p- to resource and convince people before Everybody says, yeah, it's a huge threat. That's what leadership's for. So there are a number of things that if you look at what we should have been able to do with COVID-19, and we had this common enemy everybody could hate. Nobody is gonna like a pandemic. I mean, there's no constituency for it. And so we should be celebrating, but we're not. We're not because we screwed it up. And to a degree, we keep doing that. And so, if you look at how we as a society or a government or whatever we want to do it, that if we want to look at what went wrong in COVID-19, we just got to go to the mirror.
1: You um, you, you, actually start your book talking about a tabletop exercise yeah. in, I guess, 2019 uh, that um, kind of predicted how this would roll out and yeah. suggested... Uh, the areas that needed to be shored up and so on, but they just weren't. Yeah, in
2: 2019, the Department of Health and Human Services ran an exercise in four parts over the year with a scenario of an American traveler travels to China, comes back infected, feels badly on the flight home, lands in Chicago, gets picked up by his son, his son takes him to the his home to go to bed, son goes off to a rock concert, 500,000 Americans die over the next months. Sounds pretty familiar. And 76 pages of lessons learned from this exercise were predictable things. We didn't have enough protective equipment. We didn't have the right coordination between different entities. And it, it was a very broad, pretty effective exercise. And this Crimson Contagion, it was called. And the report came out. was actually printed in early 2020. But the all the lessons were learned in late 2019. So all of the things. We had just practiced and found out weaknesses, and then, to great degree... Now, you could argue, was there time to correct all those? No. But the reality was there was time to correct many of them, and we just didn't.
1: Yeah. You know, there was also a tabletop exercise at the end of the Obama administration that was led by Lisa Monaco, who was the Homeland Security Director, on this very subject. As well. So there'd been ample concerns raised uh, about this. We're going to take a short break and we'll be right back with more of the Axe Files. And now, back to the show. You know, one of the things that has frustrated efforts to contain this virus has been resistance to uh, these vaccines. And it leads to something that you've been talking about, I know, as you've been on tour with this book. But you stress the need for communications, for narrative uh, in this book. Where does disinformation play play into this? Because these are factors that now have to be... Uh, Part of your consideration as you
2: assess right. risk and response. Right. If we go first to things like use of the vaccine, in my personal opinion, the narrative should be it's not about you. If you take an analogy of a, a, an infantry unit in the defense and you have a series of foxholes, everyone has to defend their foxhole. If you don't, there's no defense. And so the reality is, I think the idea of vaccine is about protecting everyone else. It's your responsibility to do your part. And I think the narrative from the very beginning should not be this is an opportunity to take care of yourself. It's really an opportunity, a responsibility to a wider entity. Um, I think that when we think about disinformation, the danger is it's not new. I mean, there's been disinformation for as long as there's been information. The difference now is we can distribute it with almost no cost. It's almost zero to to pass information out. And because we've gotten very good at passing information that shapes thinking, in quantity and in the deftness, disinformation can be remarkably effective. And everybody here is vulnerable to it. We all think, no, not the people in this room. We're discerning mature people. The answer is we're all vulnerable to it because it's just so powerful. I think it is the single biggest threat we have to our society today because the reality is you can get societies to do things that appear unthinkable. Um, in late April 1945, it's assessed that, Abraham, uh, that Adolf Hitler would still have been the the majority selectee to, to run Germany after 12 years of destroying and just on the eve of being completely defeated. He retained that level of popularity because he had used disinformation over the period just to be relentlessly effective. And we all say, well, if we were Germans in the 1940s in Germany, we wouldn't be Nazis. The answer is no. Statistically, you probably would be at least a good percentage of people in this room because we are vulnerable to that. And so the answer is disinformation is something that we don't yet know how to deal with because it's it's a tension with our first amendment ideas and and i i don't have the right answer to it either i just know that if you allow people to communicate disinformation effectively enough unhindered they will be able to convince a significant percentage of any population and think of the danger involved in that just extraordinary to what you can get people to do. Uh, and so we're. this is one of those problems that, as a society, we're not yet mature enough for the technology we created. Like, kind of like we created the atomic bomb at the end of World War II, and it took us a while to get our mind around, how do we control this? And I think social media and, and information technology is similar to that it is so powerful and we're just not yet mature enough to figure out how to use it in a way that is not going to be self-destructive well
1: and it also attacks uh social cohesion because it allows us to silo ourselves and we are subject to the tyranny of algorithms who exactly who 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 seek us out how much do po- political leaders have to do with this you were pretty outspoken uh which is hard for a military man yeah. Uh, about President Trump. Presumably this was one of your concerns.
2: Yeah, it was really the heart of my concern. Um, My concern with President Trump was really not policy. I mean, I didn't agree with many of his policies. I agreed with some of them, but I felt there was a a essential dishonesty to much of the message. And it was, if you take Savvy politicians who this is their mission in life is what they want to do, and we've got busy Americans out there working a hard job, coming home and and don't have time to parse through and do a lot of looking at competing things. They become vulnerable to uh, people who exploit them, and I think that President Trump exploited um, a tremendous number of Americans and still does, and I think he does that in a. Uh, a remarkably effective but dangerous way.
1: You know, I want to just return to a question. This is related to this, and that is the, sort of the state of morale of the military. Uh, as you and I were talking, you know, when you uh, when you first became active, it was in the post-Vietnam era. There was a very low morale in the military, and 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 military members were not well treated when they came home uh, from Vietnam. There was a there was a defunding of, of 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 the military and so on and it was a, a time of low morale how would you rate post-afghanistan post some of the dislocations that we saw with uh, president trump how would you relate how how would you uh, assess the morale and of the military now yeah
2: i'll start by going back to i i entered west point in the summer of 1972 and, you know, I'm a 17-year-old kid going, and, and the first time we were allowed off the installation was sometime that fall. We were allowed to go to a football game, and I went to Rutgers, and then we were allowed to go into New York City for a few hours to see how much you could drink before you got on a bus and, and came back to uh, West Point. How'd you do? <laughs> <laughs> Too well. <laughs> um, but we were in our long dress overcoach, you know, with the thing. And I remember walking down the street in New York City, and a car comes by, and a girl, teenage girl or whatever, gets the top half of her torso out of the car, and then she drives by slowly, giving us the finger with both hands. And here we are, just West Point Cadets, you know, never been to Vietnam or anything like that, but she just, with this hateful thing. And and so many veterans went through so much, but we got just a tiny taste of that, and then it's never been the same since. I mean, it's always been better than that, my whole career and, and, and even now. But I think that the, the challenges to the military are, are several. Um, first off, I think they, you should be very proud of what they did in Afghanistan and Iraq. It was good people really performing in an admirable way. There are always some exceptions, but on the whole, it was pretty extraordinary. But every time I went to an installation in Afghanistan, little, small bases around the country, or Iraq, the platoon leader or platoon sergeant or one of the NCOs would be the son or daughter of one of my friends. And I'd known many of them in high school or grade school. Now, what that meant was the military, to a great degree, the leadership has become a family business. It's from, you heard, my family pedigree, and that's, I'm proud of it, but that's not really good because the military is not broadly representative of, of all American population. All zip codes are not represented in the military to the degree I think they should be. And so we tend to recruit from certain parts, and it's a professional military, so it tends to stay longer. So that there's an insularity that's created that didn't exist in previous times when people came in, draftees, and went out. And I think that that's an essential vulnerability we've got to watch. And because if the military starts viewing itself as separate or morally superior, and you go in some third world countries where the military will say, we are the guardians of the nation and these politicians come and go, but we, we I mean, Pakistan, for example you have real challenges with that. So we don't want that to happen. The military has to be a mirror of our society in every way or it's not gonna be representative for us. So so that's an issue. And then the military has to have a real sense of purpose. I think morale in the US military is pretty good because the population supports so well. There is this case of, okay, we're after 9-11, what are we focused on? But with the rise of China and Vladimir Putin and other factors, I don't think there's any shortage of things to worry about, but it will be. That's a comforting message. Yeah. It will be very important that the military feel that they represent and they are connected to the American people. That's the real strength. I remember, interestingly enough, when I was like a two star general back in the Pentagon for a year, and a a member of Congress actually recommended to me why don't we take. Uh, immigrants and offer them, if they serve, then we'll create kind of a foreign legion. And, of course, we do allow people who aren't citizens come and serve and, and win citizenship, but he, his idea was to create this sort of foreign legion so that they could fight our war and we didn't put Americans at risk. And, of course, as soon as you don't fight wars with your own population, you got problems. And so... How about, I mean, we are... We talked a few minutes ago
1: about being siloed and a disproportionate number of members of the military tend to come from smaller towns, rural areas. That is a big dividing line in American politics right now. Do you worry about that, about uh, essentially these young men and women being targets of of, for radicalization or whatever through disinformation, through the kinds of things that we've seen, or just through sheer polarization as we've come
2: to see it. I do worry about that because you tend to have, as you say, disproportionate amounts from certain parts of the country which tend right now to be more conservative. And you have uh, many cases very strong, charismatic sergeants, noncommissioned officers and if they hold more extreme views, that that really has an impact on younger soldiers. I don't think it's hugely widespread, but I think it, it really bears watching because it would be easy to have that kind of a mindset grow inside the force, and in pockets I'm sure it does. And so I think we have to be aggressive in going after it um, because if you start to allow that to arise, there are just you know endless number of problems And again, once the military doesn't view that it is representative of society, then you've got an issue. We see that with some police forces where they're not representative of the area that they actually police.
1: Before we go, because it's related to this, you're a big proponent of national service beyond military service. Why and how do you think that would help?
2: Yeah. In short answer, I'm a great believer in civilian national service for every young American. I think every young American should get the opportunity to do a year of paid national service, paid so that, you know, you're not limiting it to people whose parents can support them. And and we're talking about a stipend level of pay. Do a full year. And the reason is, is because I think citizenship in America has eroded. The idea of what it means to be our responsibilities. We've got these inalienable rights, but what about our responsibilities? And a lot of us think, well, if we pay our taxes and we vote, we check the block and now give me my rights. In reality, our responsibility is to every other American. Think about volunteer fire departments, barn raisings, you know, uh, defense on the frontiers, where you had to take care of each other. And we've atomized our society now. We tend now to grow up in one neighborhood, move to somewhere where we're going to work for our, that period of our life, and then go retire somewhere else. So often, you don't have multiple generations of the same family in the same town. So you don't have the same sense of ownership of a retired person doesn't care as much about the elementary schools because their kids live four states over. And so I think what we've got to do is find what can connect us both to our nation, give us a relationship to our nation and to each other. And I think that idea of shared service the opportunity to do something, conservation, health care, education, do something for a year, take care of the elderly. At the end of that year, I think people come out of that different. They're more mature. They're more invested. They, they're part owners of the American experience because they have contributed to it. And I wouldn't make it mandatory because anything you try to make mandatory now gets this, you know, antibody-like response. But I'd make it socially... Uh, mandatory, meaning, as I describe to people, you look at someone who's in their 30s and you say, where'd you serve? And if they don't have an answer, then there's that embarrassed science and you turn to somebody else, where someone says, no, I taught here, or I did so-and-so, and th- this idea that we all did something. And do it with people not from your zip code. Because who do we hate? We hate people we don't know. And then once we got to know those people, eh, they're not so bad. And that's the way people feel. So I think we desperately need something. And I think this would be the single biggest thing we could do to start to heal the divide in America.
1: Well, General, thanks for your service. And thank you for being here. It's good to see you again. The book is Risk A User's Guide. Really, really interesting book. And I highly recommend it. Thank you.
2: Thank you, Dave.
0: Thank you for listening to the Axe Files, brought to you by the University of Chicago Institute of Politics. And CNN Audio. The executive producer of the show is Allison Siegel. The show is also produced by Miriam Finder Annenberg, Jeff Fox, and Hannah Grace McDonald. And special thanks to our partners at CNN, including Rafina Ahmad, Courtney Coop, Ashley Lusk, and Megan Marcus. For more programming from the IOP, visit politics.uchicago.edu.